Father, I thank you for the gift of your Son. And I thank you, Father God, that in your, your plan, his blood was all sufficient for our salvation. I thank you also for the word, your revelation to us, the source of truth that we can rely on. And Father, I also thank you for the body of Christ, the church, that we can come together, serve one another and build one another up. I thank you, Father God, that we have a glorious future with you. Father, it is amazing that because of the work of your Son, you call us your children and you call us your friends. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you continue to work in us and through us. And Father, I lift up the children that will be going downstairs. I ask that their hearts would be filled with the truth that the Spirit of God would work in them, that they would know and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be with the adults and the helpers. Be with anybody that's downstairs. But Father God, the next generation would know the truth. I thank you that it is a church we have opportunity to give the truth of the gospel to the next generation that they also would see Jesus and rejoice and be glad. Thank you, Father, for the time we have this morning as your church. In Christ's name, amen. Children, you are excused. Oh, We spent 10 weeks in, he in um, Hebrews, and I went over a lot of my notes from that this past week and there's a part of me that thinks we ought to just start right in and do it again. I, I really enjoyed studying through that. Um, such amazing men and women. We looked at these fantastic heroes of the faith and, and clearly they are examples of a faith, the kind of faith that pleases God. Those heroes that we looked at are examples of, of one of the most important concepts of Christianity, and, and that's the concept of, of salvation by grace through faith. It's unique to Christianity. And the idea of salvation by grace through faith, it, it came up very clear early in our study in Genesis 15, 6, when we were, we were talking about Abraham, and we read this, he believed the Lord. And, it, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It was Abraham's faith that God saw and counted as righteousness. Abraham is, is seen throughout Scripture in that same way. Paul uses Abraham as an example of salvation by grace. Beautiful passage in Galatians chapter five, uh, 3, beginning in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul also teaches the idea of being saved by grace in Ephesians. It's, this passage in Ephesians is kind of like the classic go-to passage on being saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.4. <clears throat> God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, <coughs> excuse me, even though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is the classic statement. But notice, if, if, if you stop there, you're going to miss something extremely important because Paul goes on. Notice what he says in verse 10. He attaches something else to saving faith. Verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And walk there means how you live. So yes, we are saved by grace through faith to do good works. So this is where Paul takes us, and, and that should be our lifestyle. God created us in Christ to do something. Now this brings us to an awkward place. Because there is an emphasis in Scripture about doing works as well as an emphasis on faith. The best place that we can see this is in the book of James. And there have been some who say James is in total conflict with Paul, but that's not true. James says this, beginning in, in chapter 2, verse 14, and there's a, a lot more than what we're going to read but this is a key passage. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself does not have works is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and, and faith was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here's the problem. Is James teaching salvation through works? And we know that can't be true or he'd be in conflict with so much of the rest of Scripture. So let's, let's work on figuring this out a little bit. Because to me, it, it's become really not that difficult. It, it's it's kind of, I don't want to say simple. There are some complicated parts. So we start by, by remembering the faith part. Faith is a key Christian doctrine. We can all go, yeah, you got to do that. A, a Christian is saved by faith. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7 teaches a Christian must walk by faith. And we know from Hebrews eleven six 6 that faith is what pleases God. And we know in Romans 14, 23 that anything done without faith is sin. So what do we make of that passage in James about works? And real, the reality is this isn't as difficult as it sounds. And there is no, no conflict between James and Paul. There isn't. Remember, when we go to Scripture, the Holy Spirit wrote it. The canon has been established. God has protected that. There is no conflict. So we start our thinking about Scripture by saying there's no conflict. So then we have to kind of figure it out. There is, and you can find this in both Paul and James, there is a relationship between faith and works. And it's an important relationship. James is addressing a problem that the church has had throughout its history. And that problem is that there have been people who claim to have saving faith. But their life didn't support their claim. That's a scary place to be. A person can have an intellectual understanding of the things of Christ. A person can have an emotional response to the message of Christ. And, and some have, have both, an intellectual understanding and, a, and an emotional response. But saving faith that pleases God has more than an enlightened mind or emotions. It has a transformed life. That's key. There's a transformation. And that transformation, transformed life is seen in changed actions. I'm different than I was before Christ. I was talking with Marty. And when Marty and I get together, sometimes it's dangerous. I was so angry in high school. I, unbelievably. And there were so many different things. Coming to Christ, there was a transformation. Now, that transformation didn't occur all at one time, but there was a transformation. Saving faith that pleases God has results. Now, I have interacted with people 
many times in my life who say they believe in Jesus. Uh, one, one of the things that happens to me, especially that you may not all completely relate to, is that I can go someplace, uh, and, and where I've experienced this several times is on an airplane or on a ski lift where, you know, nobody can get away. And guys, you know, we agree, how you doing? How you doing, Scott? And, and, you know, so what do you do for a living, you know? And that's how we do that, right? Well, everything's fine until I answer. And I say, I pastor a church, and then everything goes weird. It's like, whoa. And, and many times I've done that, and as soon as I say, I pastor a church, the response is, well, I believe in God. Okay. What do you believe? And, and, and how does your life go along with what you believe? One of the examples that I have in my life that was so clear about this was a professor in college that taught a Bible class. And I'm not talking about a Bible college. I'm not talking about seminary. This was a secular school. And on a regular basis, he would tell us his class, that he believed in Jesus. And in this class, there was a group of believers. We kind of all sat together and, you know, read the Bible together, and sometimes we'd pray together. So we kind of challenged him. What, what does that mean, that you believe in Jesus? And what it meant to him was that Jesus was a real, historical, religious person. A great moral teacher who attracted a large following of people. He would, on occasion, when we'd press him a little, he would agree that there seemed to be some amazing events that surrounded the ministry of Jesus. He never would call them miracles, which I think is kind of weird. And when we pressed him on, on one or two occasions even more, he would not agree that there is only one true God. So he would say, I believe in Jesus, but there's not one true God. He would argue for the validity of any God associated with different cultures. So his quote-unquote profession of faith in Jesus was that Jesus was a culturally relevant man who was a great moral teacher in the Jewish culture of the first century Israel, but nothing more than that. So you could say he had faith in one sense. But his faith meant nothing. This is where where James' words come in because this, this is where the demons were at. James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons, the, the demons understood God in a totally different way than we did. They understood him in the spiritual realm. They knew God's glory firsthand. They knew his power and perfection from personal experience. And, and James says, even though they know God that way, they shudder. And shudder is from Fariso, and it means Literally, having your hair stand on end. So there's this terror 
this shaking to the boots terror. And what it's describing is the demon's complete and total terror of, the, of, of their experiencing the judgment of God. They still believe he's one. Believe he's one. But they're condemned. I believe that some of the confusion that we come to about this idea of works in James comes from a misunderstanding and a misapplication of justification and sanctification. <coughs> Excuse me. Justification means to declare righteous. Justification, then, is when God pronounces a sinner righteous because of that sinner's faith in the work of Christ. Paul writes in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also know from Scripture that, that this is something that God gives to us. It's imputed to us is, is the term that we use. And that's what's meant in Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Counted as. Counted. The counted there is from a banking term meaning to place into a person's account or imputed to. So what Paul's getting at is that Christ's righteousness is given to us. It's imputed to the believer through justification by faith. Justification is God declaring the sinner legally not guilty. Not guilty before the judge, who's God. And because they're not guilty, the sinner is no longer treated as a sinner, as, an, as guilty, they're treated as holy. If you've been justified, God sees you and goes, you got it, you're holy, you're there. But there's a concept that we have to understand about justification. It does not change anything within the sinner. And justification alone does not change the sinner's behavior. There's more that God does. The other thing to remember, here's some things about justification. Justification cannot be earned. You were dead. God did something. That's justification. It can only be given by God, by His grace, through our faith. Justification is possible because of the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. The work on the cross is what allows justification to be possible. Justification cancels the debt owed by the sinner. And what is owed? Death. Justification establishes a right relationship with God, which means the believer becomes a child of God, a friend of God, a co-heir with Christ. Wow. There's a, there's a passage that Paul writes that summarizes the concept of justification. Romans 5, 17 and 18. For if because of one man's trespass, 
death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Justification occurs because of what Christ did by God's grace. Now, sanctification is different than that, but you have to be careful because they are connected. Sanctification differs from justification, but it's connected. They're they're connected. The two are connected. And, And the reason is you cannot be sanctified Unless you've been justified. You you can't get the cart before the horse. You have to be justified to be sanctified. Okay? So what does sanctification mean? Sanctification, the, the word simply, you know, on a basic level means to be set apart. Like like set apart to be holy. This is what happens to a sinner who is saved by sin. By the grace of God, through the gift of faith, which is what Paul was, was teaching in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. You're a sinner, and now you're saved. Okay? In that salvation, you've been set apart by God. This brings us to some more nuances that we need to understand about sanctification, because there's three kinds of sanctification. Positional progressive, and final. And sometimes some theologians will say glorified or glorification. And what we've just described is positional sanctification. You come to Christ by faith and you are justified by God. And when you are justified by God, you are sanctified. At the moment of salvation, you are sanctified, set apart Positionally. Why positionally? You're saved from the ultimate penalty of sin. So you begin with the first type of sanctification, which is really tied to justification. And I like to think of sanctification in two ways that that I think are helpful. Sanctification... Positional sanctification is just like justification in that it cannot be undone. You you can't lose your justification and your sanctification can't go backwards either. Okay? Positionally. Positional sanctification can't be done away with. No one loses their positional sanctification. Secondly, positional sanctification is a starting point. It's a starting point of the second phase or or the second kind of sanctification. And usually the second kind of sanctification is called progressive sanctification. So after the starting point of positional sanctification, we know that believers still struggle with sin. We all know that. We've talked about it many times. You get saved and we still struggle with sin. 
So something's, something's going on here. We've got we to gotta fix some of this sin, and we're always constantly being concerned about our sin. So, so this is where God deals with that. We're still hampered by sin. Now, it would be great if that was our life, okay? So, so the arrow's pointing to, to heaven. You know, we're going to eventually get to heaven. And wouldn't that be great if that's the way our life is? I mean, it's just the shortest distance between two points, straight line. That's not life. This is closer to mine. <laughs> Mine's actually a little bit more complicated than that. Life isn't a continual straight line. But life for the believer is a continual process of becoming more like Christ. And even though our, our life may look crazy... The Spirit of God dwelling in us is continually working in us, bringing us to a point where we're more and more like Christ all the time. Now, there's times when I think of my life in this knotted weave, you know, and is there times when I'm actually going backwards? And, and there's some theological, theological discussions about that. That's not really the point, because the point is if you're actually saved, you've been justified, and you're in this process, the Spirit of God is going to continually work on you to become more like Christ. That's progressive sanctification. It's the process of learning to live lives that reflect the holiness of God and growing in relationship with Jesus. And we do that until we die or God calls us home or whatever. But there's a third kind of sanctification that we're looking forward to, and that's final sanctification. Final sanctification occurs in the future when we are in the presence of the glory of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's going to be an awesome time because we're not going to any longer deal with sin. It won't be there. We've been set apart from that kind of life into a glorious life. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face... Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What's he getting at? I'm going to see God. I'm going to see him face to face, and I'm not going to die. I'm going to know about him fully. That's going to be glorious. That is glory. And there can't be any sin there. So there's been a huge transformation. Paul encourages this idea in us in 1 Corinthians 15, you, you often hear this at, at, at uh, memorial services, beginning in uh, 1552. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That is also a true statement that happens in the nursery from time to time. Sorry. For this perishable, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. That's a huge change. That's also something that's set apart for us. 
Paul tells us of our future glorification in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, what? Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What is your glorified body going to be like? I was joking around with Rick Andrews this morning, and he and I are almost the same age, and, and I, I worked in my shop yesterday, and my hands hurt. He goes, yeah, I get it. You know, uh, uh, uh. I'm looking at Frank, because his body never hurts. My, glory, my glorified body isn't going to hurt. My glorious, glorious body, that, that transformed thing that God's going to give me is going to be pain-free. It's going to have so many differences. I'll still know who my wife is. I'll still know who, who you all are and, and vice versa. But there's a glorious thing that's going to happen, transforming our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's the final sanctification. So from this we can conclude that sanctification is the process that God uses to transform a person's life so that it matches the justification that accomplished us being freed from sin. If I am declared not guilty, I want my life to reflect that. Why? So that Jesus is glorified. This brings us back to this idea from James. What James is getting at, he's, he's, a, he's working against what was happening in the church. False professions. People who thought they were saved, and they weren't. The point of James is that every believer's life should show the works produced by faith. If you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, there should be something that proves that by how you live. Faith produces good works. This can also be, from Scripture we find, called fruit. The life of faith produces fruit. One place that we see that from Paul is in Galatians 5. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Now think about that. You've been justified, you're no longer guilty, and you're producing fruit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. What would your life be like if all of what you did exhibited those things that he just listed all the time? Your life, people can look at you and go, yeah. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That's you. Are you producing that kind of fruit? The only way you can produce that kind of fruit to start with is you've got to be saved. And the Holy Spirit works in us to bring us to the point. That's, that's his goal is to bring us to the point where we're, we're exhibiting that kind of fruit. The idea of fruit isn't just Paul's. Jesus talked about fruit in relationship to abiding in him. Abiding in him is branches. Branches attached to the vine. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So there's two things here. There's some branches that aren't connected. These are people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I may go to church even on Christmas and Easter. But there's no fruit. There can't be. They're not connected to the vine. And the other part is that there are some that are connected that the vine dresser is working on. That's the progressive sanctification. He's working on them and he's pruning here and he's pruning here and he's doing all those things that you do to produce fruit. If you're connected to Jesus, it's proven by what you do, how you live, what, what actions are apparent in your life. Now, this, this passage and the idea in John 15 is, is sometimes used as a proof text teaching that salvation can be lost. But that's, that's not the real warning. That's not what Jesus is getting at. The warning is directed to people who appear to be connected to the vine. People who think that just because I have this, this intellectual connection, you know, that I can say, yeah, I... I I'm a Christian. It's kind of like America is a Christian nation, right? I don't know what the numbers are today, but, you know, the vast majority would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Really? Read the news. They appear to have a relationship with Christ, but they have no fruit that's proof of their attachment to Christ. Is your faith real? Then it shows up. In how you live, the genuine believer who is attached to the true vine bears fruit. A false professor appears to be attached, but does, does not bear fruit. Apparent faith without evidence of works is not saving faith. When somebody comes to me and they talk to me, you know, about being a believer, you know, yeah, I'm a believer. Pastor, I'm a believer, I'm a believer. I do not have the ability. Just because Zach and I are called pastor does not mean that God did some kind of thing and, and we have this ability to look into your heart and go, you liar. Well, I, he didn't do, well, he didn't do that to me. You're okay? Okay. He didn't do it to Zach either. We're not equipped that way. God is. So how do we know when somebody is a true believer? God tells us they produce fruit. There's something going on. It's a life that they lead. And that life is not just, I got to do the works. I got to do the works. I got to do the works. It's doing works because I want to glorify Jesus Christ. I want to love him. I want him to be so big and me to look so little that everybody goes, man, you, you've got something I want. And that, that's Jesus. The evidence of our faith in Christ is what we, what we do, how we live. This is James' point. Works in your life are proof of your saving faith. You can say that about fruit. Fruit is proof of saving faith. So as we come to the end of this this morning... What fruit are you producing in your life? 
Now, I know there's times when, when sometimes maybe we're at a place where, where things are hard. But still, are we producing fruit? Is, is that our, our desire? Is our motivation to do good works and to produce fruit from our love of Christ? And, and do we have this exuberance to be obedient to Him simply because He's our Savior? Is that where we live? God has done something unique, and, and that's the church. And God places believers into the church as it pleases Him. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. The Holy Spirit has put you in the church. If you're saved, you become a part of the church. And there's an expectation from God in doing that. If he puts you in the church, he puts you in the church with the expectation that that's one of the places, magnificent places in your life where you will produce fruit. This isn't a spectator sport. Use the gifts he's given. You're in the church. Participate in the life of the local church. Take ownership of what happens to the local church on every level. If you're saved, that becomes proof. What motivates that? Just because pastor said stuff on Sunday morning? No, it's because you love Jesus who died for you. You're justified. You are no longer guilty. So, so be obedient to the Spirit of God residing in you. He says, do this. Do that. Go here. Talk to this one. Pray for them. Serve in this way. Some of the greatest people that I've been around in, in the church and leadership who display fruit and this idea of works are people who do stuff that nobody ever sees. Nobody ever knows what's going on behind the scenes. It's not just being up front. There are so many ways that we can exhibit fruit and that we can be a part of proving that we have faith in Jesus. It's important for us as a church that we have people who are not just spectators. Are, are, we, are we just a group of spectators? Or are we a group of people who are just... Can't wait to find a way to faithfully serve Christ. So what are you doing for the body of Christ? Where are you at? What, what, what kind of proof is there in your life that you belong to him? That pokes at his heart. But this is where God wants us to be. He wants us to be all His. And when we're all His, there's proof. Father, thank You for the church. I thank You for believers who have come to the point where they have to have more of You. Holy Spirit, thank You that You work in us. You change us. You transform us. Father, we come to you this morning willing to be obedient, willing to say, here I am, use me in whatever way you want. Take us, Father God, and be glorified 
in our fruit. Be glorified in our faith. Thank you, Father, for the work that you've done through Christ. And thank you that you have a glorious, incredibly glorious future for us. Father, thank you that we belong to you. In Christ's name, amen.